Well, the text for this morning's message is Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. If you have a pew Bible, you can find that on page 939. Page 939. The word of the Lord says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them, for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, you are awesome. You are an awesome God. We have no real uh, conception of how awesome you are. We come before you this morning with, with, with a prayer. We ask that you would come, that you would reveal yourself to us powerfully through your word. We are humbled as we stand before your word. We are privileged to come here and to worship you, that you have invited us into this place to worship you this morning. And for some of us, we need to encounter you this morning. Some some here that are outside of Jesus need to, for the first time, uh, encounter you by faith. And so we pray for that. We ask that you would send your spirit. I pray that you would help me to do what sermons can't do, and that you would speak through the power of the Holy Spirit into the lives of all who are here gathered, that you would receive the glory, that you would receive the praise, that we would become less and you would become more. Answer that prayer, Lord. We pray for your own glory and for your own name's sake. Amen. Amen. Well, church attendance has been declining in the United States for some time, and trends are actually even more severe in the U.K., in the United Kingdom. Uh, if you think of going to church in the UK or uh, in Europe and various places, you think of sort of large Gothic structures and people sort of coming to that Gothic structure, standing there and in, wearing their coats because it's quite cold and oftentimes there's no heater. And you might typify the worship services as a few people sort of standing there uh, together and reciting the song that we just sang, really, which comes from the Apostles' Creed, in some kind of uh, sort of dull, kind of mundane fashion. We believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, and so on and so forth. Well, uh, a rock critic for the independent newspaper in London wrote a poem a few years ago about the creed that he thinks most people today would uh, really hold to uh, and really would recite if they were honest with themselves. Uh, These are people who are proud of the fact uh, that they would really not be in those churches and they would really not be saying those things. And he suggests that if people were really more self-aware, they would um, have a different creed, and their creed would sound something like this. So imagine a lot of people sort of gathered together, not in the context of a church, but gathered together nonetheless, and sort of saying dully the following thing. We believe in Freud and Darwin. We believe everything is okay as long as you don't hurt anyone. And to the best of our definition of hurt. And to the best of our knowledge. We believe in sex before, during, and after marriage. We believe in the therapy of sin. We believe that adultery can be helpful. We believe that taboos are taboo. We believe that everything is getting better despite evidence to the contrary. The evidence must be investigated. You can prove anything with evidence. We believe that there's something to horoscopes, UFOs, and bent spoons. Jesus was a good man like Buddha, Muhammad, and ourselves. He was a good moral teacher, although we think his good morals were bad. We believe that all religions are basically the same, at least the one that we read about was. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. 
We believe that after death comes the nothing. Because when you ask the dead what happens, they say nothing. If death is not the end, if the dead have lied, then it's compulsory heaven for all, excepting perhaps Hitler, Stalin, and Genghis Khan. We believe in the most recent survey, what's selected is average, what's average is normal, what's normal is good. We believe in total disarmament. We believe that there are direct links between warfare and bloodshed. The goodies should beat their guns into tractors and the baddies would be sure to follow. We believe that man is essentially good. It is only his behavior that lets him down. This is the fault of society. Society is the fault of conditions. Conditions are the fault of society. We believe that each man must find the truth that is right for him. Reality will adapt accordingly. The universe will readjust. History will alter. We believe that there is no absolute truth excepting the truth that there is no absolute truth. We believe in the rejection of creeds. <laughs> well, I think we have to say that this is the mindset that a lot of people today have. Uh, and maybe some of you who have come here this morning um, have had that mindset. And even some of us who are professing, self-professing Christians find that we, maybe we have a lot of these assumptions in, in our past. And one of the best ways to sort of get it ourselves sometimes, to understand how we think, is to tell parodies like this. But as you can see, there's a lot of unhinged and really fallacious ideas out there about God in the world that we live in. Uh, maybe you're an unusually tenacious sort, and uh, you are uh, interested in really discovering and learning who God is. And so you want to go further, say, than the Discovery Special on TV, the Discovery Channel, the special that tells you about Jesus, and you're actually interested in, in really learning about Jesus. I think about the guy, you know, who's driving in front of you, and uh, he's got that bumper sticker on his car, and the bumper sticker says, um, ask me about Jesus, but you can't ever finally catch him. And the fact is, for some of us, is we are on a, a quest. We really want to know who God is. And maybe you've come here this morning and that's your position. Uh, you've been in and out of church, but you really want to know who God is. Uh, that keeps you up at night. That bothers you. Sometimes you wake up in the middle of the night and, and that thought haunts you because you don't have a clear conception and understanding of who God is. And you've been told a lot of stuff, but you don't really feel in your heart that you really have a solid, firm conviction about who God is. And that keeps you up. And, and you could go and follow the guy with a bumper sticker that says, Ask Me About Jesus. You could watch the Discovery Channel. You could go to the grocery store and read the bulletin board and see what it has to say about God. You could do that. Or, or you, could, you could really go and investigate what the Word of God has to say. Who is God? I mean, after all, who is God? Well, in a world created and sustained and renewed by God, nothing is more important than knowing God. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Ignorance of God is a luxury that we cannot afford in times like this, like these. And the fact is, for some of us, is that the boxes that we have put God in, God intends to spring out of those. He is springing out of those, and He is on the move. And God is interested in you having a bigger view of who He is. A.W. Tozer said that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about a man. It is. Alright, so we can have a lot of thoughts about a lot of things, but there's nothing more important than what we think about God. And so this morning what I want to do is I want to talk to us about God. I want, to, I want to highlight God's character, a couple of His attributes, what God is like, and I want to be clear from the very beginning what I am referring to when I'm talking about God. So when I come here, and I'm using the word God uh, this morning, I, I want to be clear that I am not talking about an abstract principle. I, I, I'm not talking about a power or a force, okay? That's not God. I'm talking about a personal being who spoke the world into existence with a word of His power. But not only did He speak the world into existence with a word of His power, He speaks to the creation that He created. Alright? This is a personal God. 
And God describes himself as being in a covenant relationship with his people. So he says in the Old Testament, I will be your God and you will be my people. And so the Bible never presents God as an abstract principle. That's how the world talks about God. God's a force. He's an energy. All right, that, that, that's the farthest thing from who God really is. So let me be really clear up front that when I'm using the word God, I'm talking about a personal creator who spoke the world into existence and has a relationship with the people that he has created. So let's start here. Let's start with the fact that God is infinite. All right, by his very definition, God is infinite. And when we talk about infinity, we are thinking about God being infinite with respect to time and God being infinite with respect to space. And I want to start with time. I want to start with God's infinity in relation to time, which is God's eternality or God's eternity. And that's where I want to start. I want our our minds to think in this direction for a minute. I want us to be humbled by the God that we have come here uh, to, to encounter. See, in our minds, everything has a beginning and everything has an end. Isn't that true? Everything. Classes, movies, vacation, books, songs, presidencies, governments, democracies, even bigger things like fame and reputation, money and wealth, all of these things, including even the biggest of things, which is the lives of our parents, the lives of our children and grandchildren, they all will come to an end. They all had a beginning, and they all will come to an end. And even your life will come to an end. So everything has a beginning. We we think in terms of A to Z. That's what we think. The beginning and the end. We get in the car, we start somewhere, we drive, and we land somewhere. And so we always think of beginning and end. But God is unlike us. He is altogether unlike us. Um, We are bound by time, but God is not. God, God is not. We cannot run from time. We just exist in it. We are stuck to time. We are in time. We cannot get outside of it. We are in it. Um, I, I used to, when I was a kid, I used to be fascinated by uh, time machines. You're thinking of the idea of getting in a time machine and traveling. So imagine we, could, we, we had a time machine here. We could get inside it, and we could go 150 years into the future and step out. And when you stepped out, you'd be amazed at what you, what you would see. Everything would be different. Technology would have drastically changed. Everything would have been totally new and reshaped. That is, of course, uh, unless you got into the time machine and you went to Owensboro 150 years in the future, everything would probably look the same. <laughs> it, seems like, it seems like this place never changes. I remember I went to uh, college and then I remember coming back after years. It was six, seven years before I was here on a regular basis. And I came back and everything was the same. I mean, Aaron, you have to be thinking that. You come here, everything's that same blue bridge, you know, just hanging out there. It's just... It's unbelievable. That's an eyesore, that bridge is. You know? It's, it's all the same. Everything's the same. But if, you, if we could get into a time machine and go somewhere, we would see, we would be able to cross time and see uh, the changes that are taking place. Now, the best we can do, actually, is sort of to travel back in time, is to remember the, the, uh, the memories of the past, the things that we used to experience, right? So we can recall um, aspects of our childhood. We have like, mental images of those things. And when we bring those, recall those things to mind, um, we can think about it. But that's very dim, isn't it? I mean, nobody here has an exhaustive understanding of the past. You, you've already forgotten so many things about the past. We can even project ourselves into the future to some degree to get an idea of what our life would be like, say, in like five, six years. But that's far from perfect because we don't know ultimately what will happen in five or six years. We don't even know if we'll be here in five or six years. Okay? So we are stuck. The, the problem here is that we are stuck in time, but God is not. Space and time have no, have no hold on God. He's eternal. He is the forever then, He is the eternal now, and He is the endless will be. He's outside of space and time, and it has no hold on Him. Friction and wind resistance cannot slow God down. Speedometers and odometers cannot measure His movements. He is outside of time, and yet, and yet, He enters into time to affect it. 
Alright? So that's who God is. Everything from, from an earthly standpoint is bound by time, but not God. I mean, even the oldest thing we can think of, which is the creation of the universe, had a beginning. And the fact is, the world itself owes its existence to God. All right, That's the oldest thing we can think of. And it owes its existence to God. So before the world was, God was. He has always existed from everlasting to everlasting. And Proverbs 8.23 says, Proverbs 8.23, From eternity I was appointed, from the beginning, from before the world existed. And see, the fact that God never existed is amazing. The, the fact that He's always existed, excuse me, is amazing. The fact that He never began to exist is what I meant to say. The fact that He never began to exist is amazing. But not only is it amazing, it's obvious from the fact that He created all things. You think about that. God created all things. Before God created the world, there was nothing. Just God. It's just God. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Psalm chapter 90 verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He's always existed. And Jesus says, Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 58, Before Abraham was, I am. God is eternal. He is the eternal I am. In Exodus 3.14, what does God call Himself? He refers to Himself as I am who I am. I mean, who takes on that name for themselves? I mean, eternality is something that is absolutely unique to God. No creature can say, can, can say that they are eternal. So... Because by nature, we are created. And if we are created, then we are dependent. And if we are dependent, then there's a creator who created us and made us dependent. So, no eternal thing is created. That means no created thing is eternal. You are created, I am created, so we are not eternal. So, from the very get-go, there's a fundamental difference between you and between God. God is infinite. There's an infinite space and difference between us. Before even creation was, God was. Just think about that for a minute. All right? The oldest thing you can think of, before that existed, God was. God was. Creation itself owes its existence to God. Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. All right? So what does this mean for you? Here you are, you're sitting here, it's Sunday morning, all right, we're at Heritage Baptist Church, and you're asking, all right, you're talking about the eternality of God, what does that mean for me? Well, it means a lot of things. And so I want to unpack a little bit of this for you. The first thing that I want to say is this, if God is eternal, then Christ is God. If God is eternal, then Christ is God. Now, how, how am I arguing that way? How am I reasoning there? All right, I want you to look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. Colossians 1.17. This verse, you can see it, is very clear. This is what the Bible says of Jesus. It's describing Jesus. And the text says, And He, speaking of Jesus, is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Alright? So Jesus is before all things. And so the Bible is describing God as being eternal, and here we're seeing that Jesus is being described as being before all things, which means that Jesus has the characteristics of God. Jesus is God. He is before all things. What being do you know that existed before all things? See, I, it, it amazes me sometimes that Jesus, his deity is argued, um, is, and people will come and they will raise so many objections to the fact that Jesus, they'll say, well, Jesus isn't really God and the New Testament isn't clear on, the New Testament is crystal clear on the deity of Jesus Christ. I mean, it is unbelievable. When you start mounting up the evidence, look, this is a rather sort of obscure uh, passage. You wouldn't think to go to this passage, but when you look at it, it's describing Jesus, it is saying that Jesus existed before all things. So what greater proof do you need that Jesus is God than the fact that He existed before anything was? 
So that's crystal clear. This this week I was sitting at Starbucks and, and a Jehovah's Witness came to me and began to evangelize, sort of in quotes, evangelize me and began sharing with me uh, this sort of all these propositions and passed out this literature, the Watchtower literature. And, and the literature said six myths about Christianity. And one of those myths about Christianity was the fact that Jesus is not God. Jesus is God, and that was, that was considered a myth, right? That Jesus is God. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. And I, and I, I asked her, okay, so what about, what about John 1? How about John chapter 1, verse 1? And then she twisted that and said, well, it means this. And the, the point is, I, you could go all over the New Testament and just mount up evidence after evidence after evidence that Jesus is God. That's a very deceptive cult, by the way. It's very, very deceptive and dangerous. I mean, she approached me and actually had her Bible there and said to me, she goes, oh, great, you're, I see you're reading your Bible. I mean, that's great. You know, I don't get to see too many people reading their Bibles. And uh, then she said, I, I, I love the Bible. But everything that came out of her mouth was heresy. That's dangerous. So be aware of, of false shepherds. Be aware of false teachers. So Jesus, uh, Jesus is before all things. Now, think about this. Jesus also says, we already saw it in John, that he calls himself, I am and in Exodus 3.14, God was called himself, I am that I am. So Jesus himself takes on the name of God. For Jesus to say, I am, and the I am statements are all over the Gospel of John. I am the bread of life. I am, I am, I am. Jesus is taking on himself the name of God. Number two, if, if God is eternal, then how foolish is it for you to question his plans and purposes? To think about that this morning. How foolish is that? Uh, you, you, maybe, you're, maybe you came here this morning, you, found, you find yourself in a, in a mess. You find yourself um, disillusioned, really, with church. You find yourself disillusioned with Christianity. You find yourself disillusioned in your marriage. You find yourself just disillusioned. And, and, and the temptation is to begin to sort of question God and ask, you know, is, is maybe God has made a mistake here in my life. And I want you to think about how, how ludicrous that is. The fact is, God is eternal, and He sees all things. He is omniscient. He knows all things. And, and He is not only all-knowing, but He sees. He is all-present. He is everywhere equally at the same time. Knowing all things, and being eternal, and being before all things exist. And so when he looks at your life, he sees not before your life, the beginning of your life, the duration of your life, the end of your life. He sees it all. It's all crystal clear to him. He knows exactly what you will do every minute of the day tomorrow. Alright? So God is not struggling trying to figure out how best to shape your life. There's no way that God is making a mistake with your life. He's not. He is all wise. He is, that's why the Word of God says, Who are you, O man, to answer me? Has not the potter right over the clay? Who has known the mind of the Lord, Romans 11? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has ever given to him that God should repay him? And the answer is no one. So take hope, because God knows you. That should be a comforting thought. Number three, if God is eternal, then He knows everything about you and always has. That means you are under the watchful eye of God. Now for some of us, that's a good thing, and for others of us, that's a bad thing. You know why I say that? I say that because this should be alarming to you if you've not received forgiveness. It should be. It should be alarming to you because at every moment, the eternal creator of the universe sees you. He hears you. He knows everything that you do in secret. He sees you at the office. He, he sees you when you go into that back room of the office and you pull out that tray and you grab some paper and you put it into your bag and steal it. 
He sees you when you go and you grab pens every day in order to take pens so you don't have to buy any more pens. He sees you when you go into that closet. He sees you late at night when you are flicking through the TV channels. He sees you when you call up that phone service when you're at home by yourself. He hears that conversation. He sees that Facebook message that you send, that personal, private Facebook message. He sees those texts that you fire back and forth, back and forth, from cell phone to cell phone. He sees you on your computer. He watches you on your business trip. He's never done anything but see you. That's just part of who he is. He sees everything about you. So you need to to realize the God that you are dealing with this morning. If God is eternal, then there's no room for boasting. Is there any room for pride? Is there any room really for any of us to be prideful? I mean, if you're a proud person, then you have no conception of who God is. Absolutely no conception. At the backdrop of God's eternity, you should feel your nothingness and absolute dependence on God for everything. I mean, think about the shortness of your life in respect to God. I mean, it's a vapor. It is literally a vapor. You are here and you are gone. And and a good portion of us have already exceeded sort of more than 50% of our lives, and some of us three-quarters of our lives, and our children are growing up just like that. They They are getting old. They are getting... They are, they're advancing in years faster than we know it. And the fact is, this life will soon be over. So there's no room for boasting when you are standing before this eternal God and your life is so short. It is so short. Number five, if God is eternal, then how worthy is He of your life and heart and everything? God is not the God of the Sunday morning. If that's your religion, if you come here on a Sunday morning basis because you think you're going to somehow respect God or pay God homage because you show up on Sundays, God is not impressed by that. God is the God of Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. God is the all-consuming fire. He is an all-consuming fire. He is demands everything from us. He is not impressed with our, our religious performance. Every one of us are going to have two dates on our gravestones. One is going to be the date of our birth, and the other is going to be the date of our death. And in between is that dash, right? That's the only thing that you can control, ultimately, is that dash. And the question I have for you this morning is, what are you doing with that dash? What are you doing with that dash? Because you know that second number is coming pretty quick. It's going to come quick. It's going to come faster than you know. Well, not only is God eternal, um, but God is independent. He's independent. Uh, theologians call this the aseity of God, his independence. Uh, God's independence means that he depends on nothing other than himself for his existence. It also means that all of his choices and purposes are independent of anyone and anything other than himself. God is not dependent on anything or anyone to complete Him. He is entirely self-sufficient. His choices depend on His own desires and purposes, and He alone has the power to actualize those choices. He is totally independent. God does not need any part of His creation to exist. We add nothing to God. Paul says in Acts 17, 24 and 25, this is a great verse, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by human hands, nor is He served by human hands as if He needed anything, because He Himself gives life and breath and everything to all. He doesn't need anything. Alright? God doesn't need it. God does not need anything since everything comes from Him, which is why God said to Job, Who has given to me that I should repay Him? No one has contributed to God anything that did not first come from God. And so God says in Psalm 50, the world and everything in it is mine. God owns everything. He is supreme over everything. God is supreme over all galaxies and the endless reaches of space. He is supreme over the earth from the top of Mount Everest to the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. He is supreme over all plants and animals. 
from the peaceful bird to the microscopic killer viruses over all weather and movements of the earth. Hurricanes, tornadoes, monsoons, earthquakes, avalanches, floods, snow, rain, sleet, over all chemical processes that heal and destroy, over cancer, AIDS, malaria, H1N1 in Owensboro, all the workings of antibiotics and a thousand healing medicines. He is supreme over all countries and governments, over all armies, over Al-Qaeda, over all terrorists and kidnappings and suicide bombings and beheadings, over Osama bin Laden, over nuclear threats from Iran, Russia, North Korea. He is supreme over all politics and elections, over all media and news and entertainment and sports and leisure and over all education and universities and scholarships and science and research, over all business and finance and industry and manufacturing and transportation, over all internet and information systems. And as Abraham Kuyper used to say, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is the sovereign Lord of all, does not say mine. Everything is His, including you. Do you realize that you are not your own? You're not even your own. You are God's possession. You do not ultimately have authority over you. That's a a shocking thought. You are God's. God has authority even over you. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? I mean, how, how much clearer can that you are not your own? That's what the Bible says about you. You are not your own. That's a shocking thought. We think we own ourselves. We are so bent towards self-autonomy and self-rule. But God tells us that everything we have is from Him, including our lives. We own nothing. We own nothing. Nothing is ours. We simply own nothing. I want you to think about that for a second. You own nothing. The reality that nothing is ours and everything is, is the Lord's is actually a wonderful truth to meditate on. I was thinking about it. It was such a privilege to prepare this message this week, thinking about God and His glory, just soaking in that. And I, and I was thinking about this this week was the fact that this wonderful truth that I own nothing, it frees me. This, this truth frees me. It frees me to know that I don't own my car. It's not mine. It's not my car. All right? It's not my house or household, nor my business. I don't own that. Nor my wallet and the limited cash in it. It's very limited. All right? Nor, nor my bank accounts, IRAs, mutual funds, friends, family, jobs, church, body, clothes, shoes. They're all gifts from the Lord. I don't own them. They're not mine. They're gifts. And they're gifts not so that we can hoard and keep, but gifts so that we can distribute and give. That, that, that's what they're for. Okay, So they don't come from you. They're not yours. You don't own them. And you're supposed to be giving them away. How, I mean, how twisted have we become? I mean, how sick have we become? We, we, we not only selfishly hoard those things, but we have turned that into we own those. We are selfish. We are protective. You know, I'm going to hide this. This is mine. And God is just must be looking at us saying, look, I'm the eternal God, an independent God, and looking at you, and you are hoarding what's not even yours. It never has been. You don't own that. So that this blows my mind that I am not mine to do whatever I want. I'm not even mine to do what I want to do with. I'm God's, and here to do whatever He wants me to do. So it's, it's as though God has said, all right, here's a life, and I want you to invest this life for me. Here's your life. I'm going to give this life to you, but I want you to invest it for me. It's really my life, and I want you to invest it. Who in here would say, I, I want to waste my life? I want to throw it away on, on um, frivolous, negligible endeavors. I mean, nobody would say that. But I want you to examine yourself this morning. What are you living for? What are you ultimately living for? Examine yourself. Because, friends, whether you like it or not, you are dependent on God for everything. If you waste it, if you waste it, that's it. You get one life to live here. That's it. You get one life to live. And if you waste that, it's over. Now compare that. Compare your dependency and your life of dependence with God's. Do you realize that He is in the exact opposite position we are in? Uh, he answers to no one. 
God has no boss. He is the boss. Uh, if that's not clear from the very first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1-1, then, then we're not reading. Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God. Okay? So it doesn't get any clearer than that. In the beginning, God. God has life in himself. There is no cause of his existence. Nothing caused God. God just is. He always has been and always will be. God was not created. He never came into being. He just is. He is totally unique. He doesn't need the creation. He doesn't need us for anything. Indeed, he cannot by his very nature. Because he's self-contained, self-sufficient, and self-satisfied. And he's in need of nothing. And when God created the universe, he was under no constraint or no obligation to create you or me. It was just a sovereign act of goodness on his part. I mean, even the water and sky before that was formed, God was. God cannot not exist. All right? He just is. He always has existed. He's, he's never done anything but exist. So you may be asking the question, okay, then why did he create us? If he doesn't need us, and, and what, maybe God was lonely, or something was inside God that made him lonely, so he decided to create us in order to enter into a relationship with us, in order to complete him in some way, no. Do you realize that God was completely satisfied in the enjoyment of himself before creation? Jesus praised this in John seventeen five. He says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory with which I had with you when? Before the world was created. So, there, there is fellowship in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is all blessed in Himself. He is completely satisfied in Himself before us. The fact is, all is well with God, even if you and I weren't around. Isn't that, isn't that an amazing concept? We're, we're so, we're so uh, self-bent. We, we, just, we just raise our, we prop ourselves up so much. We think that God is somehow um, incomplete without us. Like in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 15, uh, God says, Look at the nations. They're like a drop in the bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. Not, not human beings. Nations. Whole nations. God says, dust. Just dust. Verse 22 and 23. He is the one who sits on the earth's horizon. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers before him. He is the one who stretches out the sky like a thin curtain and spreads it out like a pitch tent. He is the one who reduces rulers to nothing. He makes the earth's leaders insignificant. Grasshoppers. That's how God refers to a ruler. Think of a great king of an empire. God says, grasshopper. I mean, God is huge. God is way bigger than we think. And the truth is, He sustains all but at the same time is independent of all. He gives to all, but he is enriched by none. Now, I want to give a balancing remark here, because I don't want anybody to be drawing the wrong conclusion. I don't want you to be thinking this morning, well, then if God doesn't need us, then, then we're not important for anything. There is no significance to our existence. Friends, there is great significance to your existence. You are very meaningful to God. Do you know why? Because He created you. And God is not whimsical. He doesn't do anything without a good purpose in mind. He loves you. Do you realize that your greatest value and self-worth comes from the fact that He made you? That's where your self-worth comes from. We're trying to find that self-worth in so many things. Money, success, jobs, prestige, title. You know, we're trying to find it. And so we end up doing all kinds of illicit things because we're just not happy. We're not satisfied. So we drink. And so we use drugs. And so we, we, we have all kinds of illicit sex. And all this stuff is happening. And God is saying, look, the, pro- the problem of all this is that you are not finding your significance in me. God loves you. He, he, is, he is so kind and gracious to us. That's where your self-worth and joy is meant to come from. But the point that I'm making, though, in light of that, though, is the fact that God created you. All right? He created you. And He is not dependent on you for His existence. He loves you. You are worthy. I mean, you are, you, your self-worth comes from Him. But God is not dependent on you. 
So what's the application for us here? The application is, is clear. If God is independent, our search for significance ultimately rests in Him. It does. Um, to rest in anything other than God is to rest in something that's a dependent thing. All right. So anything that you are resting in or trusting in to find your sense of security and help is something that's dependent on God. So what you're doing is God is saying, you should go to the top. You should find your rest in me. But instead, you're way down here playing around with things that aren't going to satisfy you because God created those things. So you're trying to find satisfaction in something that's not infinite. So you're, what you have to do is find your rest in God. You'll never find ultimate significance and joy and purpose and satisfaction in anything other than God. We have no rest until we find our rest in Him. And number two, if God did not need to create you, yet He chose to do so for His own joy and for your good, then the most foolish thing you could ever do in the world is to reject Him. And some of, some of, some of you youth here who have been in this church for a long time are doing that. The fact is, God did not need to create you. He, he chose to do so for your good. You're wasting that. You are rejecting that. And I want to warn you this morning, that's a serious rejection. Well, unfortunately, some people have chosen to reject God. And so what happens to such a person? Hebrews chapter nine twenty seven says, It's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Every person in this room, every person will stand before God, and you're going to give an account. You know what? You're going to give a speech someday. You are. You say, well, I'm not, I don't give speeches. Well, you're going to. You're going to give a speech. Whether you like it or not, you're going to stand before God. And God is going to require of you an account. And you're going to give a speech before God, the eternal, all-sufficient, and independent God. And when you stand before Him, you're going to have to give an account for why you rejected His Son as the all-satisfying treasure. You're going to have to give an account for why you lived for you, why you were looking out for number one. And you rejected His Son, Jesus. You're going to stand before God. That, that's going to happen. All right? I, I'm not going to be faithful to you if I don't tell you that. That's going to happen. But not only are you going to stand before this all-sufficient, this, this all, uh, sufficient, eternal, and independent God, but He is also the judge of the universe. I'm not sure that um, some of us believe that this morning. Do you believe that? Ask, ask yourself this question. Do you believe that God is a God of divine judgment? Do you believe that? Many people don't believe that. In fact, pastors are told that we're not supposed to talk about this anymore. You're not, you're not supposed to talk about justice. You're not supposed to talk about judgment, wrath, hell, sin. These are topics that are taboo, right? We're not supposed to talk about this. But what we're supposed to do is talk about God as Father, which He is. God as friend, which He is. God as, is, as love, which He is, if you're in Christ, all those things. But we're not supposed to talk about God being a judge. So what does it mean that God is just? What does it mean that He's the judge of the universe? Well, ultimately, God's justice means that He always acts in accordance with what is right. And He Himself is the standard for what is right. So God always acts in accordance with Himself. He is the standard. He is the ultimate standard. Examples of, of God judging people in the, in the Bible are all too clear. I mean, we just go down the list. God judged Adam and Eve. He expelled them out of the garden for their sin. God judged those who worshipped the golden calf. In the New Testament, the Jews were judged for rejecting Jesus. Ananias and Sapphira struck dead for lying to God. New Testament. thought God was just a God of justice in the Old Testament. New Testament struck dead. Ananias and Sapphira. Herod, for his pride, was judged. So the Bible is clear, especially in the New Testament on this issue, that God is a God of justice. And the fact that the New Testament is filled with descriptions. Peter speaks of God being the righteous judge. James speaks of God being the judge of the living and the dead. So God is a God of justice. Because righteousness and justice are a part of His character. God can no more give up His justice than He can give up His eternality. It's just part of who He is. You say, well, Jonathan, I'm not that bad. 
I'm just not that bad of a person, you know. Well, li- listen to me for, for, for a minute as I close here. Here's the issue. Man's pride lies in the way of his submitting to the righteousness of God. Men are so determined to believe that they are good that they will go to hell over it. They will say, I'm a good person. And they will hold on to that so tenaciously that they will even go to hell over that because they are so convinced that they are a good person. They are so determined to believe that my grandparents were good people and they deserve to go to heaven that God owes them something. They are so determined to believe that. And that doesn't sit well with some of us because we are so determined to think that we are good. My granddad's a good man. I'm a good person. I deserve something from God. And you will hold on to that self-righteousness. And if you continue to hold on to that, God will say, you are rejecting the righteousness of my son. It's not about your righteousness. You, if you're going to do that, you have to have a perfect righteousness. All right? So if you're good, that's great. But if, unless you're perfect, it's not good enough. You have to be absolutely perfect to meet God's standard of justice. You say, I, I'm a good person. Are you perfect? I'm serious. I'm dead serious. That is the standard perfection. It is absolute perfection. So we are we are not righteous. We have to come we have to come to the place where we realize we are not good people. We are wicked, we are hell deserving, we are not righteous, we are not good people. Righteousness alone comes from God, and prideful people do not want to admit this, and the failure to admit this will be your ultimate demise. If you do not admit this, because people will reject the righteousness of God in exchange for their own. So we're guilty. And if God has not let the guilty go unpunished, and he doesn't, then we are not ready to face this God. So what have I been doing this whole message? All right, I'm closing. Here's what I've been doing. I've been saying that God is eternal. He has never not existed. He just is. He is independent. He does not need you or anything else for his existence. And he is the judge of the universe, which means you're going to stand before that God. You're going to stand before an eternal, independent judge of the universe, and you're going to give an account. And, and that's bad news, really bad news, unless there's something else about God's character. Unless God is also a God of mercy. And friends, he is. I am not going to leave you here hopeless. That, this is a Christian church. We preach the gospel here. So I'm not going to leave you sitting there completely hopeless. I want to tell you that God is also a God of mercy. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Perhaps the, some of the greatest verses in all of the Bible. Look at these. The Lord descends, descended in a cloud and he stood with Moses on the mountain and he proclaimed the name of the Lord. Moses says, Lord... Uh, declare to me your name and show me your glory. And the Lord cries out in verse 6, Yahweh, Yahweh, which is the Lord, the Lord. And he spells out the meaning of the name Yahweh in words that are so sweet that have never been surpassed, probably even in the New Testament, words he says this, O a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, Steadfast love, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That, that, that's, that's the name of God. God says, my name is merciful and compassionate. That, that, that is my name. I'm taking that on. He, God could have chosen any of the attributes to declare his name. He could have said, behold the Lord, the Lord God, the judge. Behold the Lord, the Lord God, the lawmaker. Behold the Lord, the Lord God, the, the all-powerful one. But what he chose is, Behold the Lord, the Lord God, the merciful and compassionate one. Some of you may be thinking, well, well verse 7 though. But verse 7 says, But he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. And verse 7 goes on to say, But he will by no means clear the guilty. So what is it? Does God clear the guilty or does he not clear the guilty? And the answer is actually quite simple. It's this. He clears some that are guilty and others he does not. Who does he not clear? He does not clear those who are unrepentant. If you repent, there's forgiveness for you. If you are unrepentant, there is not forgiveness. But he forgives the guilty who turn from their sin and put their trust in Jesus Christ with their whole heart. But the guilty who spurn God, who reject the offer of his son Jesus, 
he will show no mercy to. He will not clear. So, friends, what about you this morning? What about you? What should you do? If you, if you were in this place, what should you do? Here's God, the eternal, independent judge of the universe. And you're going to stand before him. And, and if God is going to clear you, you're going to have to be cleared by him. And how is that going to happen? Well, I'll tell you how, it's hap- how it happens. You need to go to that judge, that eternal, independent, self-sufficient judge of the universe. You need to go to that judge. And you know what you need to say to him? To the judge, you need to say, Lord, sovereign God, I want you to not only be my judge, but my Savior. Go to the judge as your Savior. Because the judge can be your Savior. It says in 2 Timothy 4.1 that Jesus is the judge of the world. We know Jesus is a Savior of the world. 2 Timothy 4.1 says Jesus is the judge of the world, which means the judge and the Savior are the same. So your greatest problem is Jesus, but your greatest solution is Jesus. Do you see what I'm saying here? You're going to stand before the eternal, independent judge that is Jesus, and you're going to give a speech. And so before that happens, I plead with you this morning to go to that judge and ask him for mercy. He is quite willing to extend mercy to you. He is quite happy to do so because He is the Savior. He loves you, and He sent His Son to die. God crushed His Son for you. Jesus went willingly to the cross for you and received the wrath of God for you. You can receive that. That judge can become your friend and your Savior this morning. And that happens by faith in Jesus and repenting of your sins. You simply need to repent of all of your sins. You simply need to confess that you are not God. You need to confess that you are wicked, hell-deserving, sinful, and you are going to give an account before that God. You need to confess to Him that you are unworthy and that you do not have a righteousness of your own worth anything. And you need to go to that judge and say to the judge, Judge, I want your righteousness. I want your righteousness that you have provided for me in your Son, Jesus. And so I am putting my faith in you as the Savior, as the righteous one. And if you repent of your sins and your self-worth and you put your trust in Jesus, you will be forgiven. That's the gospel. That's the hope. And that's the God that you will stand before someday. I pray that you will stand there spotless in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Have you received him? We will, friends, we will stay here all day if we need to to talk to you about your soul. If you're, if you're just not sure that's happened, some of you may say, well, I think so, but I'm not sure. Then go right here. Pastor Sam will be there, and he will talk with you. He'll skip his lunch to talk with you about the state of your spiritual condition because we love you. And um, this is a hard message in a lot of ways, but this is where freedom begins. It begins by coming to an end of ourselves. And just saying, God, you're everything. You are absolutely everything. And then freedom begins. Oh, I want you to be free. I want you to be free. Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the greatness of who you are. Lord, apply the word through your spirit to everyone who is gathered here and who is lost in that condition. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.